The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. They are undoubtedly some of the most famous words ever written about love. Possessing true poetic beauty, vivid yet terse, and a rare timelessness. So, of course, they are go-to for weddings. I'm speaking, of course, of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. The chapter begins, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And he goes on, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. These words are nothing less than wonderful. They lift you to the heights of literary raptures, yet they ground you for the grind of daily life at the same time. But do you know what Paul is actually talking about? Many people don't. Even many people who are very familiar with the Bible don't make the connection. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is exalting the way of love as he teaches about the proper understanding of spiritual gifts and their use in a local church. Yeah. There, were, there was surely some hyperbole at work when Paul speaks of tongues of men and of angels and prophetic powers and mysteries and knowledge, but he wasn't getting all Shakespearean on us. He was speaking completely in context as he taught these believers that love is the more excellent way which should govern how they pursued and practiced the gifts of the Holy Spirit that were present in their community. That is where I want us to start today, as I lay out the convictions that we have about the gifts of the Holy Spirit here at Grace Family Church. Before I say anything else, I want you to remember this call to love. A lot of conversations about the gifts of the Holy Spirit do not start here, do not pass through here, and do not end here. Unfortunately, they tend to be characterized by pride and one-upmanship and dismissiveness. And sometimes in the end, the combatants need to be separated and they go back to their separate corners, still kind of trying to throw that killer blow. In our own Jamaican landscape, convictions about the nature of spiritual gifts today are often taught and seen as a plumb line for authentic Christianity. And it is... And undoubtedly, sorry... Uh, It's an area of faith in which our church background, and in particular our experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and even our lack of experiences, play a significant role in our position, or at least in our inclination. When you add all of that together, I hope you see the need for the kind of love that Paul is calling us to in 1 Corinthians 13, as we engage with this area of teaching, and we want to do so in a way that's productive and God-honoring. So we need to be patient. We need to be kind. We can't afford to be arrogant. We can't afford to be rude. We can't afford to be proud, no matter how much we think we know. We need to assume the best about other people, and we need to ask questions about our assumptions. So here's how the Sovereign Grace website describes our convictions when it comes to this particular shared value. 
With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, God's purpose to dwell among his people entered a new era. We believe the Holy Spirit desires to continually believer with increased power for Christian life and witness, including the giving of his supernatural gifts for the building up of the church and the various works of ministry in the world. We are eager to pursue God's active presence in all its breath, that Christ may be magnified in our lives, in the church, and among the nations. If we had to say all of that in a word, we'd say we are continuationist. That term is not a familiar one here in Jamaica, but the more familiar ones, Pentecostal or charismatic, carry some ideas that, uh, that we wouldn't run with and some impressions that wouldn't be quite so accurate. So we'd rather use an unfamiliar term so that people have to ask us what it means so that we can clarify it for them. So what do we mean by it? What does it mean to belong to a church that is continuationist? Well, I'm going to do my best to lay out that out for you today under these three headings. The age of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the pursuit of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with the age of the Holy Spirit. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's page 901 in the Bibles we've provided. If you'd like a Bible, we have some over there. If you stick your hand up, Sam will bring one for you. We're going to start here in 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to leave this chapter for a bit and then return eventually to lean heavily on chapters 12 to 14. So look with me then at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's a short verse, isn't it? I mean, if you zoned out, as we all tend to do from time to time when you're listening to preaching, you could miss it completely. I want to help you to hear it. Because you just heard one of the most astounding things that is said in the entire Bible. The greatest of saints and prophets who lived before Jesus' ascension and the events which soon followed, uh, people like Moses, like David, like Elijah, like Isaiah, would have been absolutely amazed. They would have been flabbergasted to hear anyone say that. To each, meaning to every person who is in Christ, each and every Christian has been given the manifestation of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit that are seen and felt by others in some way for the good of all. These gifts are given to each individual and are meant to bring blessings to others in their local community and, and in the world as a whole. Each and every Christian is gifted by God's Spirit for the good of their community. How could Paul say something that significant so easily and in such a matter-of-fact way? Well, Paul could say what he did because he lived, and we now live, in the age of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been active in the world from the very beginning, but as God separated a people for himself, he put his Spirit on the leaders they chose. The presence of the Spirit was like a neon sign distinguishing them, pointing at them as God equipped and empowered them to serve his people and his purposes. The Spirit fell on prophets and on judges and on kings and on elders. For hundreds upon hundreds of years, this was the pattern. The Spirit of God would only rest on select people as God manifested his purpose. Yet the prophets anticipated a day when this would change, a time when God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. 
When the time of the Messiah, God's chosen king, came, there was a man sent from God named John. He had an unusual distinction. You see, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And as you probably know, the job John was anointed for was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And how would John know this man when he met him? Here's his testimony in John chapter 1, verse 33. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This man, Jesus, who was distinguished by the Spirit's continuing presence on him, would usher in a new age, and his people like him would be identified by the presence of God's Holy Spirit. When Jesus taught his disciples about the Spirit, he told them, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He even said this in John 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I, but if I go, I will send him to you. Do you ever, especially on those days when God feels far from you, read the Old Testament and envy the saints who walked and talked with God? You know, they had this face-to-face -face relationship with Him. Do you ever wish you could have been among Jesus' disciples and could have had meals with Jesus and listened to Him teach and asked Him questions? If that's the case, then based on what Jesus says, we have no idea what we have now. We wish we could have had God beside us. But how quickly we forget and how little we understand that we have God inside us. We live in the age of the Spirit. God's Spirit has been poured out on each and every one of us who has trusted in Jesus. From the greatest to the least. That should fill us both with wonder and with holy fear. After Jesus died to gather into one the people of God, he rose again and was reunited with his disciples. And Acts chapter 1, 45 tells us, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then in verse 8 of the same chapter, he promised, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The age of the Spirit was about to dawn. The Father's promise was about to be fulfilled. Some weeks later on the day of Pentecost, the second annual harvest festival for the Jews, that promise was fulfilled. Acts chapter 2 records the atmospheric pyrotechnics that happened on that amazing day. A sound like a violent windstorm came from heaven and filled the house that the disciples were together in. And as they looked around at each other, they, they saw what looked like tongues of flame above each other's heads. And they were filled with the Spirit of God. And they began to speak in foreign languages as the Spirit enabled them to do. And the show drew a crowd as God intended it to do. This crowd was populated by Jews from all over the diaspora in the Roman Empire. And to their amazement, they heard men from the country parts of Galilee speaking the languages of the people whom they lived among, telling of the wonders of God. 
And of course, they were curious and they were confused and some of them were cynical. But Peter explained to them what they were witnessing. Jesus, whom they had crucified, is Lord and God's chosen king. The Father raised him from the dead and he was now seated at his right hand. And he had poured out the Holy Spirit just as the Father had promised. The day of Pentecost must have been amazing to witness. But the wonder they witnessed that day was not simply a one-off event. It was much more like an opening ceremony. The age of the Spirit had dawned. There were certainly some unique aspects to the day of Pentecost. For one, the disciples had to wait for that day based on Jesus' instructions. But once it had come, Peter told the crowd, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how we who live on this side of the day of Pentecost receive the Holy Spirit, by believing the gospel. And the tongues that the disciples spoke that day were unique also. They were uniquely bestowed for a unique purpose. Uh, Peter explains this as the fulfillment of a prophecy given by the prophet Joel, that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, that the greatest, the slaves, from, from, from the slaves right up, they would receive God's Spirit and, and, and they would prophesy and they would have visions. So you saw a situation now where these people from all over the diaspora um, were hearing these Galileans speak to them in their native tongue. In stark contrast, we'll see that the gift of tongues that Paul speaks much of in 1 Corinthians requires interpretation for it to be meaningful to the listeners. But the age of the Spirit is about a lot more than foreign languages. The Spirit is the one who gives us new spiritual life in Christ. We covered this a few weeks ago. He is the agent of our initial sanctification or being set apart for God, as well as our ongoing growth in holiness and transformation into the image of Christ. It is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. The character which pleases God is called the fruit of the Spirit. He's our teacher, guiding us into truth. And as we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify our sinful desires. It is by the Spirit's power that we come to know the love of Jesus in a deep way, a way that surpasses a kind of mental assent to the fact. He assures us of our adoption into God's family. By the Spirit, we know that we are God's children, and we can call Him Abba, Father. He is the guarantee of our future inheritance. He intercedes on our behalf according to the will of God and leads us as we offer prayers to the Father. He's also at work in the church corporately, unifying us and building us into a dwelling place for God. He empowers us for the mission that Jesus has given us. And the Spirit manifests God's presence in the midst of His people to bless and empower and to judge and to purify. All of this comes with the age of the Spirit. But... Most relevant to what we're examining today, the Spirit gives gifts to His people as He wills. So let's look then at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And to do so, let's return to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look with me at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Do you want to know what God's will for you concerning spiritual gifts is? He does not want you to be uninformed. There's more, but that's a great place to start. He wants you to learn about spiritual gifts and his mind concerning them. 
It is possible to not have had particular experiences and to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. But being informed is not a matter of experience. It's possible to be experienced yet uninformed, to have witnessed the use of spiritual gifts, to have even exercised those gifts regularly, but not to have ever been taught about them properly. For example, were you aware that the hole in a pasta spoon is for measuring a single serving of pasta like spaghetti or linguine? Some people knew that. Yeah, I know you'd know that. Of course you would know that. I mean, I, I, if, if I had one friend who would know that, it would be you. But like, I learned that I'm like, are you serious? You, that's not for like draining water? Yeah. But the point is, you could have made pasta many times and not understand how that spoon works. Karen looks scandalized that I didn't know that. I'm sorry, Karen. One of my many shortcomings. <laughs> but the point I'm making is a lot of us were not taught properly. And that was the case with the Corinthians also. The Corinthian church was a mess in so many ways. Rivalries, scandalous sexual immorality, lawsuits between members, and that's only a sampling of the issues this church had. But they were born again. And they were tremendously gifted. Their ignorance of the nature and purpose of spiritual gifts, however, meant that they were using the gifts in unhelpful, unloving, and chaotic ways. Ignorance about spiritual gifts can result in disengagement or it can result in mania. Neither is what God wants for us. God's will for us is that we should be empowered by His Spirit to serve each other in love, with understanding, for the common good, and in an orderly and peaceful way. So God does not want us to be uninformed. But what does He want us to know about spiritual gifts? There are a number of things that come out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to go through and pull some of them out. But knowing the background will help us to understand why Paul says some of the things he does in this chapter and the two that follow. The Corinthians thought very highly of the gift of tongues. For them, the ability to speak in a different language as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit was the heights of spirituality. And it became a source of rivalry and disunity. So as Paul corrects their error, he teaches several truths. First, the gifts given by the Spirit are varied. And in fact, I'm already understating it. When Paul teaches about the gifts of the Spirit and the service and activity associated with them, he celebrates their variety three times in verses 4, 5, and 6. And then he goes on to list some of them. So there's the utterance of wisdom and the utterance of knowledge. There's faith. There are gifts of healing and working miracles. There's prophecy and the, and the ability to distinguish between spirits. There's tongues and the ability to, to uh, interpret tongues, sorry. And Paul mentions other gifts later in this passage, including helping and administrating, and others still in a list in Romans chapter 12. We have no strong reason to think that the Bible necessarily lists all of the possible gifts that the Spirit can give. The point is that they are many and varied, expressing the diverse beauty of God himself. Secondly, Paul teaches that these varied gifts, listed through verses 8, uh, through, through, verses eight through 11, are given by the same God. I mean, it, you, you, you could possibly conjecture that different gifts come from different spiritual entities. And Paul is making sure that these people don't get that strange idea. Verses 4, 5, and 6 speak of the triune God as the origin of spiritual gifts. And Paul hammers at this point. All the gifts are given by one spirit, the same spirit. The Corinthians pitted gifts one against another and thought that they didn't really need some of them. And maybe that can help us reflect on our own culture for a bit. One of the tendencies I've seen in some 
uh, in some Jamaican church settings, is a failure to recognize and to honor some of the gifts as spiritual. Prophecy, well, of course, that's from the Spirit. Healing, no problem. Teaching, well, it's good, but is it really spiritual? I mean, maybe that's a talent. Maybe it's just this kind of intellectual capacity. Administration, hmm, that doesn't seem very spiritual. In fact, it seems quite natural. I've seen several instances where people are serving with their administrative gifts, and they're told that they're blocking the flow of the Spirit by setting boundaries for what's going on. When it comes to spiritual gifts, it seems that a common temptation that we must battle is looking down our noses while perched on our high horses at each other. When we fail to recognize the variety of the ways in which God has gifted us as a community, we will not only fail to appreciate the gift of each other, we will also fail to be grateful to God and in awe of what He's doing among us. And our community will suffer from the absence or the marginalization of some of the gifts that God means to bless us through. The diversity of gifts given by one triune God reflects the nature of God. Within the Godhead, there's diversity and unity. There's no rivalry or one-upmanship. He wants that same unity and diversity to be reflected among his people. Thirdly, and quite briefly, God is sovereign in the giving of spiritual gifts. We see this in verse 11. The Spirit apportions gifts to each individual as he wills. And again in verse 18, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Fourthly, all the gifts of the Spirit exist to serve the body of Christ. They are given for the common good, according to verse 7. No gift is unnecessary or unimportant. That's one of the points of the body illustration that Paul uses as he works through this, this chapter in verses 12 to 26. The differences between the gifts are part of God's good design. We all play different parts for the good of all. At the same time, some gifts are greater than others. Greater, that is, in terms of their potential impact on everyone's well-being. That's what Paul is speaking to in verse 31 when he instructs, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. But we'll get back to that under the next heading. Some Bible-believing Christians do not believe that the full range of gifts are available today. They believe that some spiritual gifts ceased to operate soon after the death of the original apostles. In our studies, Sean, Sheldon, and I were taught by some men with this understanding, which is termed cessationism. These were men of God for whom we have deep respect and to whom we're deeply indebted for the way they have shaped our understanding of pastoral ministry. Their understanding is that some of the gifts Paul speaks of here are the signs of an apostle. And they serve the purpose of, of confirming apostolic authority and teaching as the apostles played their unique role in providing a once-for-all witness to the work of Christ that was foundational to the emergence of the New Testament canon. So Richard Gaffin, for example, argues that with this foundational revelation completed, and so too their foundational role as witnesses, the apostles, uh, and along with them, the prophets and other associated revelatory word gifts, pass from the life of the church. No, many cessationists do believe that God still works miracles and can reveal things that we could not otherwise know. But they would not be comfortable with saying that someone has the gift of healing or with calling someone a prophet. No, they're rightly jealous to protect the primacy and sufficiency of the Word of God as God's instrument of self-revelation, the authoritative and normative rule and guide of all Christian life, practice, and doctrine. 
That's a concern that we would wholeheartedly embrace alongside them. And it is a legitimate concern. We have seen where people can put such an emphasis on the spontaneous work of the Spirit that they neglect or sometimes inadvertently downplay the authoritative Word of God, which was inspired by the same Holy Spirit. It's a part of the cultural air we breathe. What's more likely to draw people to an event here in Jamaica? Seeing experience God's power or seeing understand God's Word? This statistically documented neglect of reading our Bibles among professing Christians speaks loudly and needs no interpretation. But for our part, it is because of our high view of the Scriptures that we affirm that all the gifts of the Spirit available to the church in the first century continue to be available to us today and continue to serve to build up the church. In fact, I know several pastors personally in, in our movement, Sovereign Grace, who are persuaded of this, not by their experiences primarily, but through the study of the Scripture. And while I can't spend a lot of time laying out what we see in the Bible this morning, here's my best short summary, if you'll grant the omission of some details and some significant areas of consideration. The day of Pentecost was a hinge in the history of the world. And despite some of the unique aspects of that day, which I already mentioned, it legitimately sets a precedent that what began then continues now. That's why it makes sense that we see lists of spiritual gifts that, that we've spoken of already and the instructions that we look at soon here in the Bible. And we're taught that the purpose of all spiritual gifts is mutual edification, serving one another in love, a need which has not changed. It seems, therefore, that, it seems, therefore, that the natural expression based on the book of Acts and the epistles, it, natural expectation, sorry, based on the book of Acts and the epistles, is that spiritual gifts continue to function in the contemporary church. There's no necessity created by the New Testament authors to put gifts in different groups, nor to expect that some would no longer be needed or no longer function. And while some cessationists argue from 1 Corinthians 13 for the possibility that some gifts have already ceased, as all gifts will, I haven't seen any biblical text in which that contention is, is, is established demonstrably. It seems most reasonable and faithful to the Scriptures to assume that the instructions about pursuing spiritual gifts that we are about to look at in 1 Corinthians 14 apply to us as much as they applied to the original recipients. And that's where the rubber hits the road, in fact. A value which does not shape our behavior is not valuable. We don't just want to believe in the full range of the gifts of the Spirit. We want to learn together to pursue the use of those gifts in the way the Bible instructs us. So we turn our attention then to the pursuit of the Spirit. So let's make a running start from 1 Corinthians 12 and jump to 1 Corinthians 14, but kind of like triple jumpers, so we'll touch 1 Corinthians 13 on our way. There, Paul was pointing them to a more excellent way than comparison or competition. All of the spiritual gifts in the world are nothing without love. We gain nothing from them. So when we land in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul immediately sets the course for this local church. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Pursue love earnestly desire spiritual gifts because of the one who gives the gifts because of how they reflect his excellencies because of the purpose for which the gifts are given that is to build up his body and to serve the world around us we are called to lean into the will of the spirit and to have an intense interest in and desire for spiritual gifts especially prophecy that's challenging 
Some of you may be fairly convinced these days that prophecy is a sham. You may have had some very negative experiences and have seen people manipulate and hurt others, claiming that what they were doing was using the gift of prophecy. I've seen that too. And it's wrong. We ought to grieve over such things. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, in speaking of the church as a body, says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. We recognize how difficult it must be for you to engage with anything labeled prophecy, much less to earnestly desire such a gift around you or even in you. But the existence of false teaching, manipulative self-serving teachers, and immature teachers does not invalidate the gift of teaching. So I want to ask you to ask God to help you to posture yourself in, a, in the same way you do towards teaching when it comes to the gift of prophecy. Some of you might be open to spiritual gifts, including prophecy, but very cautious about them. I feel that way sometimes and in some settings. The problem is that Paul calls us way beyond being willing to give prophecy a chance. We are called to test prophecies, but if we are to be faithful to the Scriptures, we need to learn how to do that without becoming skeptics. And that's hard, isn't it? Some of us have very positive thoughts in general about spiritual gifts, but we're not necessarily consistent in our pursuit of them. Our zeal waxes and wanes. But Paul marries the pursuit of love to the eager desire for spiritual gifts. Why would he do that? He does so because love is not a feeling. Love is a way we act wholeheartedly towards one another. Therefore, love requires the ability to do something. And spiritual gifts represent unique and particular ways God has equipped his people to do some very normal-seeming things and some very unusual things as we act in love towards our brothers and sisters in his body. So in a very real sense, if we marginalize or reject spiritual gifts, we tie our own hands as we attempt to love and serve each other. What we're being called to is zeal in our pursuit of spiritual gifts in order to be able to serve each other. But why prophecy in particular? Why does Paul appear to elevate this one gift? It seems that there are a couple of things going on in Paul's mind. Remember that the Corinthians had a bias towards speaking in tongues. And when you read this chapter, the backstory that emerges is that when this church gathered, what was probably happening was a whole lot of tongue speaking and no interpretation. And Paul is against that practice. It's not that he's against tongues per se. At the end of the chapter, he warns them not to forbid speaking in tongues. He's against the uninterpreted use of tongues in the gathered church because he's for something better. He's for building up each other. So he points out in verse 4 of chapter 14, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. That's what Paul is for, the building up of the church. He's for the common good. He wants their eagerness for the manifestation of the Spirit to be shaped by love, and that looks like desiring to do well at what serves everyone. Paul's specific focus on prophecy and his arguments for why it should be pursued over and above uninterpreted tongues, which he lays out in detail between verses 2 and 25, reveal the principle that's guiding him. Edification comes through understanding. Edification comes through understanding. Meaning matters. We can't be built up by what we don't understand. The other emphasis that emerges later in this chapter is order. 
Disorder and confusion do not reflect God's nature, and they do not serve the gathered church because they interfere with everyone's ability to hear and to understand. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is worthy of careful study. But what I want to do for a few minutes is to take some strands of teaching that I've been grabbing from these chapters and attempt to plot them together so we can see what's forming and how it impacts our pursuit of the gifts of the Spirit. For one, we need to recognize that any approach to using our gifts, which is self-involved, that is focused on self, focused on me, on what I need to do or say right now, or comes from a place of wanting to distinguish myself or demonstrate my giftedness, is incompatible with the path of love we're called to pursue. Love looks to the interests of others. So we'll be careful even about how it does things, seeking to be sensitive and considerate to others. That's the kind of caution we want to have alongside our eagerness. For two, the main setting Paul has in mind for the use of the gifts of the Spirit is the local church. That's instructive. The local church is where these gifts can be recognized, they can be encouraged, they can be nurtured, and they can be evaluated. Everything Paul describes between chapters 12 and 14 comes together and makes perfect sense in the context of a local church. What's interesting is that when the gift of prophecy is used in the local church, it communicates God's specific concern for this local church, for these specific people. For three, Paul's extended discussion about tongues and prophecy needs to be heard in the context of his correcting a particular error in the Corinthian church. Speech gifts do play a very important role in the life of the gathered church, but the foundational truths that Paul lays out in chapter 12 about, about the esteem that we should have for all spiritual gifts should help to guard our hearts against the error of elevating prophecy in unhelpful ways. So even as a very young local church, we want to celebrate the broad work of the Spirit in our midst. Every week, our core team, and increasingly a number of you who weren't a part of that original core team, show up and work hard and work with joy to make this Sunday service happen. That is the work of the Spirit. And we are grateful for the gift of all of you to us. Uh, I thank God for you regularly. It's a joy working alongside you. Behind the scenes, there are some of our ladies with tremendous administrative gifts, and they're working in such a way that you wouldn't notice or be aware of all they're doing, but it's causing things to happen smoothly and effectively as we get together and we do things. So we celebrate those gifts. Big up admin team. Thank you so much for your hard work. Every week as Sheldon and Sean and I prepare sermons and exercising, exercise our teaching and preaching gifts, the Spirit is at work. The Spirit is at work over there in Grace Kids. And the Spirit is at work in your understanding the Word of God, in every encouragement and every drape up, and in the ways you're seeing Him transform you and transform others around you. God's Spirit is at work. Can I get a witness back there? Hallelujah. The reason we have the congregational mic is to facilitate the Spirit's spontaneous work among us. And it doesn't need to be dramatic. You can pray a simple prayer or read a scripture that has come to mind as you see the direction we're being led in. Or you can share a prophetic impression or an encouragement or share a tongue as long as we're going to interpret that. We know that this is new for many of you. So in the coming weeks, we're going to be providing some further instruction and context and training as we grow into this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the things we pray and hope is that you'll see God's power at work in our community. We want you to see that in the way we love and care for each other. 
We want you to see it in the way we serve in mundane tasks with joy each week. But we also want you to see it in those what just happened, how could you possibly know that moments when God lovingly reveals the deep secrets in your heart and brings you face to face with Him in His power and His wrath and His love and His mercy so that you'll turn to Jesus from your sins. Let's be praying for the Spirit to continue to pour out gifts among us. The eager desire that Paul commands is rightly expressed through prayer. And his instructions here indicate that while every Christian has gifts given by the Spirit, there's more on offer for those who seek Him. So we're called then to pursue the full expression of the Spirit's power in our community, guided by the goal of love and a biblical understanding of edification. We're not called to chase spectacular experiences or pyrotechnics. We're not after wonderful, exuberant feelings. We're not looking for glory clouds or for gold dust. I want you to be eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, and I want you to know what a biblically shaped rather than a culturally shaped or what's hot right now shaped pursuit of that looks like. It looks like striving to excel in building up the church and knowing from the Scriptures what builds up the church. So we who live in the age of the Spirit have been given the gifts of the Spirit for the edification of all. And we, your pastors, want to lead you towards the pursuit of the Spirit as an expression of our eager desire for the fulsome manifestation of His active presence as we build a local church together. I think one way to picture what we're after is to imagine this local church as a ship. Not one of those modern cruise ships, but one of those sailing ships like like a galleon from several hundred years ago that, that also had oars. I joke with people from time to time that planting a church is a bit like sailing a ship while you're building it. If we were on a galleon, we could try to get get where we were going by rowing, with everyone taking a station and taking a shift, and we'd get somewhere steadily and eventually. But 1 Corinthians is teaching us to recognize the wide variety of spiritual gifts and commanding us to earnestly desire the higher gifts, and it is pointing us to God's desire to empower us. Individually, And together, we already have supernatural power at our disposal. And there's more to come. Receiving the Spirit's power is like shifting from rowing everywhere to being carried by the wind. Just as the capabilities of a ship to travel are increased exponentially by employing its sails in comparison to using oars, so our capacity to love and serve each other as a community is increased exponentially by desiring and employing the full range of the gifts of the Spirit. So let's hoist our sails, Grace Family Church. We have quite a journey ahead of us, and the wind is blowing. Let's see where he takes us. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.com.